And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. Last week, we were in Rochester for the Republican State Convention. This week, it's the Democrats' turn. The big difference is there's no mystery at all about who the state DFL party will endorse for any of the statewide offices. Governor Tim Walz, Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, Attorney General Keith Ellison, Secretary of State Steve Simon, and State Auditor Julie Blaha will all get the party's backing for new terms. So what will Democrats do all weekend in Rochester, and how do they plan to keep their 12-year winning streak going? Joining me to try to answer those questions and more is the chair of the Minnesota DFL party, Ken Martin. Ken Martin, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. So with DFL incumbents in all these offices, what is the purpose of the convention? Is it more of a pep rally than an endorsing contest? Well, it's certainly uh, a little bit of both. Uh, We still have to endorse all of our candidates. And, uh, of course, we don't expect any surprises uh, over the course of the weekend. But it's also a celebration of our values. It's a celebration of the success that our incumbents have had in office these last four years and really uh, a conversation about the future of this state and a vision that uh, Governor Walls and the rest of our constitutional officers are going to present over the weekend. And so, look, I I cannot promise you the same type of uh, fireworks and craziness that we saw at the Republican convention just a week ago here in Rochester. But I can promise you that there'll be lots of excitement and enthusiasm uh, amongst the DFLers here as we re-endorse uh, all of our candidates for re-election. Well, that uh, is exactly the next question I had for you, because a lot of Republicans in Rochester last week seemed pretty fired up about uh, their chances this year. Is it a bigger job trying to convince uh, DFL voters to be excited about this year's election? No, not at all. In fact, I think, you know, the reality is, is we have uh, had a lot of success these last few years in office. Uh, Governor, lieutenant governor, or attorney general, secretary of state, and auditor all have a great record to run on and a great vision for uh, the state of Minnesota. And so not at all. In fact, uh, DFLers across the state, Democrats across the country uh, are uh, getting more and more fired up by the day. And in fact, uh, recent decisions, uh, i.e. the Roe decision that was leaked and others have really crystallized and made the contrast uh, so stark between the Democrats and the Republicans as we head into these next 172 days. We're seeing a huge increase in enthusiasm and excitement for Democrats throughout the country and certainly DFL candidates here in Minnesota. Well, it's no secret that uh, there are a lot of headwinds uh, facing Democrats this year. Gas is more than $4 a gallon. Food prices are up. Uh, Crime is up. President Biden, I saw a poll today, 39 percent approval rating nationwide. Uh, Democrats, as we say, have been in charge here for the past four years. Shouldn't Democrats get the blame for the situation we're in? Well, here in Minnesota, you know, the reality is, is there's a lot of stuff that happens nationally and all around the world that are contributing to the inflation that we see. Uh, this uh, started uh, well before President Biden took office, and it's a re- direct result of supply chain issues, labor shortages, COVID, et cetera. And so as we come out of this, we actually expect inflation to decrease over the summer as we go into the election. And the president and other uh, uh, folks in uh, Congress are really trying to get their hands around how we bring down some of the 
those uh, uh, inflationary uh, prices. But the reality is, is what we saw in the 70s and 80s with stagflation, where you had high unemployment, uh, coupled with increasing consumer prices, we're not seeing this time around, which most economists believe that, uh, you know, this is going to be a short-term effect, uh, not a long-term effect uh, that we're dealing with. And in fact, just yesterday, here in Minnesota, we celebrated um, the fact that we've hit a record low unemployment uh, rate. Uh, we, we have virtually full employment in the state of Minnesota and, frankly, around the country. Anyone that wants to work uh, can find a job. And that's a good thing. Our economy is churning. And thanks to decisions, responsible decisions that uh, Governor Walls and the DFLers and the legislator made during this pandemic, our state is actually coming out of the pandemic in a much better position, both uh, economically, also from the safety and health of our citizens. The governor made tough decisions, uh, which were required at the time. And I think uh, he's been vindicated. Uh, there's no doubt that Minnesota is in a much better position because of the decisions that he, Peggy Flanagan, and DFLers in the legislature made. I think the thought for a few years now has been that uh, elections are going to be won or lost in the suburbs. And uh, I'd like to ask you what you think about that. Is that your theory of the campaign? And, And what's the DFL message in the suburbs? How do you win there with inflation and gas prices where they are? Well, look, you know, I've been saying for some time the Republicans in this state uh, have completely abdicated being a party that governs uh, with all Minnesotans in mind. And certainly from a political lens uh, and a campaign lens, they certainly haven't campaigned that way. I I think 12 years ago when I came in as chair, it was very clear that the Republicans uh, made a a pact uh, with with folks in greater Minnesota, that they were going to try to appeal to folks in greater Minnesota, really at the expense of a message and policies and even campaigning in the suburbs and in, in the urban core in any serious way. As a result, they've lost a lot of power in uh, the suburban communities. And in fact, over the last 10 years, the Minnesota DFL has actually uh, consolidated nearly 10% more of the suburban vote. And as a result, we, we picked up a net gain of 12 legislative seats in the suburbs. And we don't see that trend and uh, going away anytime soon. And certainly with the nomination of Scott Jensen and the ticket that they have, there's nothing that these candidates are running on that will actually appeal to suburban voters. Look, voters in the suburbs care deeply about education. And Governor Walls and Peggy Flanagan and DFRs in the legislature delivered uh, one of the largest uh, education funding increases in the last 15 years. Um, uh, They care deeply about transportation funding. Governor Walls, President Biden, and and other Democrats Democrats in Washington and here in St. Paul have delivered on uh, bonding projects and transportation projects that will help our suburban communities uh, deal with uh, increased uh, congestion and uh, transit issues. Uh, You know, suburban voters uh, certainly care about crime, as you mentioned, and it's Governor Walls and Democrats in the House and in the Senate who put forward proposals that actually have a balanced approach on uh, public safety, making sure we're giving our police departments the tools they need to bring down crime, not only in the urban core, but in the suburbs and in greater Minnesota. And so I I think, again, the contrast couldn't be more clear between a Republican Party that stood in the way of any progress these last few years and a DFL party led by Governor Walls that's actually delivered on the promises they made to Minnesotans. You brought up uh, greater Minnesota, rural Minnesota. Uh, How did the DFL lose so much support there? Don't your candidates need to get, if not win there, at least get a certain level of support to win statewide? And And will Minnesota see the the drop-off in rural votes for Democrats the same way other states have seen that? 
Well, you know, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. There's no doubt um, that we have lost uh, over the last uh, several decades now support in greater Minnesota. Uh, but it, it's not completely accurate to say that uh, we are not competing out there. And in fact, in 2020, uh, Joe Biden and uh, Democrats, DFLers in this state, uh, shrunk the margin in 53 counties in greater Minnesota, right? We clawed back some of the ground that we had lost in prior election cycles. Uh, and we, we know uh, that there are still huge pockets of Democratic votes coming uh, from greater Minnesota, Rochester, Mankato, St. Cloud, Moorhead, Duluth, Iron Range. You can go through the list. Um, the Democrats are still competing in greater Minnesota. And I would just argue as well, we're investing in greater Minnesota. The DFL party is. We now have over 25 offices around the state, almost all of them in greater Minnesota. We have boots on the ground, field organizers out there as we speak, uh, organizing volunteers to have conversations with voters in those communities. We're not giving up on greater Minnesota. In fact, we're doubling down on it. We're making deep investments. I, I'm not sure that's true of the Republican Party or their candidates at this point. And so we're, we're going to compete in every zip code because we believe every zip code matters in this state, much like Governor Walls, who has governed and campaigned uh, under the slogan, One Minnesota. That's certainly what the DFL believes. We're not going to leave any part of this state behind. Is Scott Jensen the Republican Tim Walls wanted to run against? Well, you'd have to ask Tim Walls that, but I will tell you this. Uh, he certainly uh, uh, gives us the starkest contrast between any of the other Republican candidates that we're running. I, I think Dr. Jensen uh, is really proven to be a quack, uh, you know, and I, I, I say that with all, all due respect. Um, you know, as a doctor, uh, you know, he, he's taken an oath, a Hippocratic oath, and uh, he's completely ignored that oath and some of the things that he has glommed onto, his conspiracy theories, his anti-vaxxer theories. Uh, really out of the mainstream of most medical professionals. And then when you inject that into the political arena, he's very dangerous. And there's no doubt that Scott Jensen is, uh, if he's elected, would be the most dangerous candidate uh, to be elected to uh, the governorship in, in my recent time. And so I, I think the contrast is very clear between uh, Tim Walls and Scott Jensen. And we look forward to a coming out of this weekend, uh, really starting to draw that contrast for Minnesota voters. But this weekend, let me be clear, Mike, this weekend is not about Scott Jensen. This weekend is about our candidates and our vision for the future. And, you know, you'll hear some references about that, but we're really focused on the future and offering Minnesotans a sense of, of uh, what we're going to do once we're uh, reelected to office. Well, along those lines, how does Tim Walls convince Minnesotans that the state is on the right track when most polls show an overwhelming majority of people think the country is on the wrong track? Yeah, I think that's uh, probably right, Mike, but you also have to look at the state uh, numbers. And by and large, Minnesotans believe we're headed in the right direction. And I always say the proof is in the pudding, right? Uh, the, the reality is is uh, the governor has a great record to uh, run on. Uh, and all those issues I mentioned before, right? Uh, and the economy is turning in the state. We're rebounding at a faster rate than any of the other states in the upper Midwest. Um, we are uh, uh, safer because of the decisions that the governor and lieutenant governor made. And at the end of the day, um, Minnesota is headed in the right direction. And people people notice that. And yeah, there are some issues right now that our whole country has to deal with. Uh, uh, none of them the making of Tim Walls or President Biden, but certainly issues that we know we have to get our uh, hands around. And uh, Democrats are putting forward ideas both in Washington and DFLers here in St. Paul to try to address those. But, the, you know, again, when you 
any election is really a choice. It's a choice between uh, Jim Walls and now Scott Jensen. And the contrast, again, could not be any more stark there. And so, you know, in absence of uh, talking about candidates, when we just talk about the mood of the electorate, we really have to put it in the context with the choices that they're going to be facing with, uh, faced with on the ballot in November. And to me, and of course, I'm biased, the choice is clear. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, do you think Democrats can win the state Senate, keep control of the state house? And if so, how do you do it? Well, look, I, I absolutely believe uh, that we will keep the state house. And I think we have a, a really good path, although it's narrow. It's a strong path to win back the, the state Senate. It starts up in northeastern Minnesota and Senate District 3 and 7. It starts uh, keeping all of our incumbents, of course. And then it starts in Rochester. We've got a great candidate down there, Liz Bolden, running in the Dave Sengem seat. Uh, we believe that it, the seat's going to flip uh, Senate District 45 out in the uh, Western Hennepin County. We believe we're going to pick that seat up. You know, um, there is a very strong path to the majority, uh, albeit narrow. And, you know, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that uh, it will be uh, a close, close battle for the state Senate. But I think we've got a path. We've got great candidates. And unlike the Republicans, we're well-resourced and have the organization on the ground to help get our candidates across the finish line. How worried are you about third-party candidates cutting into uh, what could be your totals? Well, you know, look, it's it's really a, a, a shame what's happened the last uh, couple election cycles here in Minnesota with um, uh, major parties being co-opted by imposter candidates. And I'm certainly hopeful we are monitoring uh, daily the filings that are happening here in Minnesota right now. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that those will have an impact, and they did have an impact both in uh 2018 and in 2020. And so we're monitoring it. We continue to monitor it. Uh, There's not much we can do about it based on how state law is written. Um, The only thing we can do is expose those candidates and make sure, frankly, that people understand the stakes of the election again, that now is not the time to throw away a, a, a protest vote to a third party candidate. We are uh, thanks to the far right in this country, we are on a slow march towards authoritarianism with uh, uh, individual privacy rights and liberty be- being taken away uh, step by step. And I would just tell your listeners, look, every um, generation has to fight these fights anew, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's voting rights, whether it's marriage equality. There is no right in this country that's guaranteed. And here we are on the eve of this election, 172 days away. Uh, it's not really just about our candidates. It's also about the type of country and state we want to live in, and the stakes couldn't be any higher. And so for me, you know, uh, I think we have a job to do as parties, and particularly the DFL party, to make sure that anyone who's thinking about voting for a third party uh, really understands the stakes of this election. If you're throwing away your vote uh, and voting for a third party, you are in fact helping the Republicans, uh, and, you're, and, and you're throwing away our values. Uh, just very quickly, uh, how is the uh, leaked uh, abortion decision playing with the party? Is that are you seeing more interest in Democrats, or or what's happening with that? Well, not only are we seeing more interest in Democrats, we're seeing more interest from independent voters and even Republican voters who believe this is a bridge too far for even their party, right? And this is just an example, unfortunately, what's been happening in American politics with extreme voices on both sides really starting to co-opt the debate. The reality is, is uh, over two-thirds of Americans believe that abortion should be legal and safe. Uh, yet, uh, again, a extremist uh, 
far right conservative base is pushing uh, to strip people of uh, their rights, which we've had in this country for now over 50 years. And as I mentioned, it's not when you read the opinion, it's not just uh, about abortion rights. It's also about privacy rights. And where do you draw the line? Uh, What's next? Marriage equality. What's next? Contraception. What's next? Interracial marriage. What's next? Voting rights. Uh, You can go down the list on all of these. And uh, this is a really dangerous precedent the court is setting. And these are the stakes of the election. And we are seeing great enthusiasm and excitement, not just amongst the Democratic base, but amongst people who care deeply that uh, about um, individual privacy rights and liberty. And they're joining hands with us. Again, moderate Republicans, uh, pro-choice Republicans, independent voters who are uh, standing up and saying, not on our watch, we're not going to allow this to happen this election cycle. Ken Martin, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. That's Ken Martin. He's the chair of the Minnesota DFL Party. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Today we're talking with Democrats because the state party is holding its convention in Rochester this weekend. If you listened last Friday, you know we were there for the Republican convention. And as we've mentioned, at that convention, Republicans endorsed Scott Jensen for governor. He'll be the biggest target for Democrats as this election season picks up steam. One person who knows Scott Jensen well is DFL DFL State Senator, who was first elected the same year as Jensen and who, like Jensen, is a physician. Senator Matt Klein of Mendota Heights has become one of Jensen's biggest critics over the past several months. And Senator Klein joins me now. Thanks for coming on. Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you this afternoon. I don't know if you remember this, but I sure do. Back in 2017, after you had first taken office, I had you and Scott Jensen on this program. And one reason I remember is that we heard from listeners about how refreshing it was to hear people talk civilly across the political aisle. Now, fast forward a a few weeks back when I had Jensen on the air and he said your friendship was basically over. What happened? Well, we really did have a good personal and professional relationship. We entered the legislature in 2017, and there had not been a physician in the legislature uh, from either party for over a quarter century. Uh, He came in as a Republican and I as a Democrat, and we forged a professional relationship. I don't know if you remember, shortly after we got into office, Governor Dayton fainted during his state of the state, and we both met up at the dais and sort of resuscitated the governor together. And that that formed, in my view, a a relationship of trust and sort of, uh, you know, soldiers in arms uh, type of... Of brotherhood, and uh, we work together pretty closely on responsible medical issues. We, we've mm-hmm. passed legislation on insulin here. We worked on pharmaceutical pricing. We worked on gun violence legislation. Uh, and then I, I'll be honest, Mike, when COVID came along, uh, there was a significant transformation in, in my old friend, uh, Scott Jensen. He embraced uh, an anti-science an anti-truth agenda. Uh, he abrogated the responsibilities of his medical degree. He spoke out very early and unexplainably against masks and distancing when those were only our only tools to sort of slow this thing down. He claimed that physicians were faking the death counts from COVID-19, which was just irresponsible and outrageous. And then when the vaccine came along, of course, he sowed doubt about that and sowed doubt about therapeutics. Uh, and it was just appalling. And in my work at the hospital, you know, I saw the sort of deadly and devastating fallout from that type of rhetoric from Scott Jensen. And, and yes, it's uh, it's violated our friendship. So. so fair to say you've gone from being one of his best friends in the legislature to one of his biggest critics? 
No question. And, and now that he's poised to become, you know, the chief executive of this state, I can't think of anything more dangerous for the personal health of Minnesotans uh, and for our sort of faith in our elected institutions. It's not really at this point confined simply to uh, COVID-19 and sort of the anti truth agenda. He's carried that, uh, you know, cadre of lies over to election situations and saying, you know, that there was a big lie in 2020. Um, you know, he's threatened to jail Steve Simon, our secretary of state, who's doing a responsible job. So it's really not the same guy I entered the legislature with uh, four years ago, six years ago. Well, do you think he, um, and I, I, I'm maybe this is an unfair question, but do you think he knew what he was saying is wrong and said it anyway? Or he didn't know what he was saying was wrong about things like COVID? <laughs> I get that question a lot, and I uh, have uh, late awake nights wondering that. Um, but I tell you what, there's no way he could not know that he was wrong. As any responsible uh, physician who has talked to a colleague or picked up a medical journal, you know, and I know he he's actually a pretty knowledgeable physician, uh, so for him to claim against all sort of medical advice that masks were ineffective or, uh, you know, that the vaccine was more dangerous than helpful uh, or it was unnecessary, all of the things that he sort of has done, you know, day after day, I think he did know that those were not true, um, but they, they did advance his ambitions. They've obviously landed him now at this point poised to become the governor. So I think that he uh, made a cynical choice there. Hmm. Well, and when he was in the Senate, he also signed on to bills to expand background checks for gun purchases. He signed on to a bill that would make it a crime not to immediately report a, a stolen gun. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, he signed on a, to a bill to legalize cannabis. And he's backed away from all of those now and even apologized at the convention last week for signing on to gun legislation. Where do you think he really stands? Well... That's a great question. That's, I think, what the voters of Minnesota have to judge him by, is those types of actions. You're right. He was very excited to sign on to a bill with me and with Senator Matt Little about uh, background checks and uh, you know controlling gun violence in our state uh, when we first entered the legislature. And it was the right thing for him to do as a physician. It's a good public health measure. Uh, and now, you're right, the, the Republican convention sort of extracted an apology and a, a mea culpa from him uh, for doing that. And apparently he was willing to sort of go back on that for the sake of their endorsement. So uh, that speaks to a man's character or a person's character. And uh, I think the voters in Minnesota will have to judge, uh, you know, what that says about how he would behave uh, given the keys to the office. Well, one thing he, he says a lot is that uh, he wants to start a conversation. He, he said he signed on to those bills because he wanted to help start a conversation. What do you take that to mean? I don't know. I think when you sign on to a bill here at the Senate, most people assume you want it to become a law. Uh, it's not starting a conversation. It's uh, your distinctive signature saying this is the policy of the state of Minnesota that I would like to see achieved. And uh, I've never signed on to a bill that I didn't believe in, and I don't know any of my colleagues who have done that. So, I, I you know, the, he, he believed in gun control when he was for gun control, and, and now he no longer does because it doesn't suit his uh, ambitions with the party. So, hmm. Well, um. Uh, I don't want to spend the whole time on Scott Jensen, but he, he's also called uh, for a total ban on abortion in Minnesota, assuming Roe versus Wade is overturned, uh, which it may well be. What would be the consequence of that, in your opinion? 
Well, that's extraordinary. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's clearly not the will of Minnesotans, uh, close to 70 percent of whom believe in uh, a woman's right to choose uh, and her individual liberties and individual privacy. Uh, so that's an astonishing thing for a chief executive to assert. Um, and and it would, as a physician, it would create just tremendous danger uh, and public health risk in this state because uh, people would continue to get abortions but through more nefarious means, uh, or they would be forced to carry out pregnancies which were physically damaging or dangerous to their health. So I can't think of a sort of a more destructive leap backwards uh, for health uh, of women and of of all Minnesotans in this state uh, than such a measure. Well, let me zoom out a little bit to uh, the campaign at large. You represent a a suburban area. What do you think Democrats have to do to win in the suburbs this year? Yeah, you know, people are worried, and I heard you speaking with uh, Chair Ken Martin, and uh, people are worried about the state of the country and and inflation and so forth, and Democrats have uh, put forward responsible solutions to address those things. We put forward responsible targeted tax cuts for um, working Minnesotans. Uh, You know, we would like to fully fund education and address children's mental health, which are clearly uh, urgent needs in our state. Uh, We've put forward responsible uh, proposals regarding public safety uh, and $100 million in uh, you know, increase law enforcement in this state because people are worried about crime in the suburbs. Uh, and we've tried to address the housing crisis because I think, you know, unaffordable homes and lack of homes uh, has touched everyone in my suburban community. Uh, so I think those are the types of things that that I'm going to run on and that, that we should run on and that, that are good policy for our state. And if we can communicate those effectively, uh, you know, I think we'll do very well. Do you think people will be willing to listen, given that uh, it seems like many are are not impressed with Joe Biden and have maybe had enough of him? Well, you know, you never know. The election is a, a half a year away. That's an infinity in political time. Um, and I think Joe Biden's doing some good things to, you know, bring down inflation, uh, improve the supply chain. Uh, I can see our economy is recovering. In Minnesota, unemployment is at record lows. Governor Walls has protected our health and, and led with responsibility. And I think his poll numbers are pretty good. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know when I go to the doors in uh, West St. Paul that people are voting on me based on what they think of Joe Biden so much. I think they see what their legislatures do here in Minnesota, and they're pretty satisfied with that on the Democratic side. I know you have to get back to work, but uh, do you think the legislature will finish its work by midnight on Sunday? (laughs) I tell you what, I start a shift at uh, the hospital at 7 a.m. on Monday, so let's hope so, Mike. (laughs) Okay, DFL Senator Matt Klein. Dr. Matt Klein, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a great day. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. As we've been saying this hour, Minnesota Democrats are meeting this weekend in Rochester for their state convention. Last Friday, it was the Republicans, and while we were there for our noon program, we talked to several Republican delegates. Our reporter, Mark Zedeklik, is in Rochester today getting ready to cover the DFL state convention, and he joins me now. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mike. Uh, The convention hasn't actually started yet. So what's going on at the Mayo Civic Center? Lots and lots of setup, literally thousands of those blue and yellow Tim Walls campaign signs on the walls, the windows, the tables, wherever they can be affixed. Delegates, Mike, began trickling in this morning to register, but uh, 
there are not many delegates here right now. A lot of volunteers putting up signs, distributing literature, literature and that kind of thing. The main point now is to set everything up. Democrats want to make sure that the images coming out of here in Rochester show an energized DFL base behind a popular governor among Democrats who think he is poised for re-election. Hmm. And unlike the Republicans last week, I understand the Democrats are taking some pretty strict COVID-19 precautions. And yeah, that's almost an understatement. Attendees must show proof of vaccination and then everyone must undergo a COVID nasal test right here at the convention center. It's a quick turn test. Mine took about 10 minutes or so start to finish. I take tested negative. Otherwise, I would not be in here. Had I has, tested positive, I would have been escorted out. And like everyone else who's going to make it in here eventually, I'm required to wear a light blue wristband to prove that I did indeed test negative. So they're taking COVID very seriously here at this convention. Hmm, I have to tell you, last week, uh, no such uh, precautions. Uh, hardly anyone was wearing a mask. Uh, there were huge crowds everywhere. Uh, nothing like that at all. Mm-hmm. So, so what's on the agenda uh, for the convention today? What time does it start and what, what happens? Well, it starts at about 4 o'clock, and uh, before that, they've got to get through a lot of registering and, like I said, a lot of that testing, but they appear to be set up for it. They have a very large room uh, to move people through and that kind of thing. Then the big event comes late this afternoon. The convention will endorse Governor Tim Walz's bid for a second term, and there's expected to be all the fanfare that usually accompanies that sort of thing. That's what will be front and center today. Interesting to note, I think, Mark, that four years ago, Tim Walls was not endorsed by the DFL. He had to uh, go on to the primary where he uh, where he became the party's nominee in August. Absolutely, in a much different position now with party activists than he was four years ago. There will be no balloting this time around. There's no competition. The delegates will cheerfully endorse Waltz by acclamation. They'll then hear the framework of his re-election agenda directly from him. You recall the last time around four years ago, Tim Walls left the convention without the endorsement after several rounds of balloting. State Senator Aaron Murphy won it. Walls went on to defeat Murphy in 2018 in the primary, mm-hmm. and then, of course, won the general election and was finishing up his first term. Republicans seemed really fired up last weekend. Uh, it took nine ballots to endorse a candidate for governor, but they were excited all, all throughout. Do you get any sense of what the Democrats are thinking? They're pretty excited that Scott Jensen is going to be the GOP candidate if he makes it through the primary. They think Walls is in a strong position to win a re-election, even though there's a midterm and Democratic President Joe Biden is relatively unpopular. Uh, they think Scott Jensen will actually help uh, Democrats. Here's Delegate Mallory Sucho. She's 69 years old and lives right here in Rochester. I think the Democrats have a good platform. I think they've got a lot of good things that they've been working on over the last couple of years. They've been dealt some pretty tough blows over the last uh, couple of years. And and when they started, they started with a lot of issues that they had to resolve that were left from the previous administrations. So I think they've got a good platform uh, versus the other platform, which um, to me doesn't have a lot of meat on the bones. Do you think Governor Walls will be reelected? I do. I feel very confident that he will be reelected. I think he's done a really good job over the last four years. It's kind of interesting to me that four years ago here, he did not win the endorsement. Someone else did. He went on and won the primary, of course, and now he's a fairly popular Democratic governor among Democrats. It was a good strategy, I think, on his part to do that, and I think it was a winning strategy, obviously, for him. 
How can Democrats in general do well in a midterm election, which is typically difficult for the party that controls the White House? Right now we have record inflation. We haven't seen this inflation uh, this high since maybe 40 years or something like that. There are concerns about the pandemic continuing on. There are concerns about international uh, issues. You're wearing a U.S.-Ukraine pin. How possibly can the Democrats be in a good position? I think that, as I said before, I think they have a good platform. I think they've got some really good strategies that they have been putting in place over the last couple of years. Um, as with everything new that's come up, you're going to stumble a little bit before you kind of get things rolling and on the, off, off the ground. And I think they, you know, there have been a few things that they could have probably done better, but overall I think they've done a really good job. And I just think we have to get a better message out there that lets people know exactly what has happened over the last few years and how, how things really are in a probably in a little better shape than we're feeling because we're really feeling that pinch of the inflation of inflation but I think overall if you're looking behind the scenes at some other things we've done really well in those other areas as well and I really think that um, what happened with the Supreme Court was uh, unfortunate uh, because of the leak but I also think it's helping to energize um, women especially and and people that are av- men that are advocating for women so I think it's I think that's going to actually help a little bit as well with the midterms you mentioned that you think the Democratic platform is superior to that of what the Republicans are contemplating. What about the platform specifically do you like, do you appreciate, what issues are you particularly concerned about? Well, I like the fact that they're focusing on people and they're focusing on, on the hurts that people are feeling right now in terms of trying to control inflation and and trying to uh, work on the infant formula issue that's going on right now. And I just think they've got some very succinct strategic things that are going to help um, middle class and and, uh, socioeconomically challenged folks as well. And I think those are really going to be important to the general public. I don't see your light blue bracelet. There it is. I knew you had it it. somewhere. What did you make of all the stringent requirements to get in the door? I think it's great. I mean, I think with the situation we're in right now with the variants popping up, um, it's a very good thing for us to be doing at this point in time. We don't want to have a super spreader event. Uh, Maybe one of the safer rooms in Minnesota this weekend. Exactly, exactly. That's DFL Party Convention Delegate Mallory Suchow talking to our reporter, Mark Zedeklik. And Mark, you, you mentioned there aren't many folks there yet, but you talked to someone else too? I did, and that was 80-year-old Bruce Peck. He is from Cross Lake in northern Minnesota. He too is expecting Walls will be reelected. And he, too, thinks Republicans' decision to endorse Scott Jensen will be good for Democrats. The man he's running against has zero chance to win. I went to a speech he gave in Cross Lake. The man's a little outside of reality. What do you like about Governor Walz? He's trying to do the best he can for the people. Uh, He may not prove all the people, but you're never going to satisfy everybody. But if he has the right thing in mind and the majority of the people, you know, you're never going to please everybody. Trump people are going to get 30 percent of the population vote. So if Trump backs you, all you got to do is 20 some percent of the vote and you're going to get elected. So that's why the primaries, they've been keeping with Trump. After the primaries, you watch the action. What do you think Governor Walz's chances for re-election are? 
Oh, about a thousand percent. He, there's no way he's going to lose. Why are you so confident? The economy is, uh, well, booming with jobs and things like that. We have a lot of problems with inflation right now. There's a lot of international tension with what's going on in Ukraine. The pandemic continues on. It seems like it would be a difficult time for Democrats in a midterm election. The abortion issue is going to be a big thing. 53% of the population are women. If a bunch of white, old white guys are going to tell women what to do with their bodies, I want to wish them well. What about the stringent uh, COVID restrictions at the convention? I just came in and uh, went through a test. You did a test too. I see you have the, the, blue, the light blue bracelet. What do you make of all that? It's a necessity. Uh, if you have a bunch of people, you're going to have people that aren't uh, vaccinated. Uh, a lot of people still aren't vaccinated. They'll die and it'll be less voters against us. I mean, I uh, went overseas at 19 years old and had, I forget, 16 or 17 shots. Yeah, you're just crazy. It's there. I came through the polio thing in the 50s. No one fought that. It, are you more energized to be active in politics this cycle than you have been in the past? And if so, why? You've got to make sure that you get the right people in or try to get them in. If you don't vote, 46% sat out the 16 election. 46% of the people didn't give a damn who was elected. Look what happened. You know, we got to get the vote out and we got to do the best we can. But uh, who knows? But I guarantee you, Walls will be the. He will succeed himself. That's DFL delegate Bruce Peck talking to our reporter Mark Zadeklik in Rochester this morning. Mark, uh, they're going to endorse Tim Walls for another term this afternoon. What's on the agenda for tomorrow? Well, before they get to tomorrow, Mike, I'll bet there'll be a lot of parties in Rochester tonight. Then tomorrow, more endorsements. Delegates will endorse DFL Attorney General Keith Ellison's re-election campaign. They'll do the same for Democrats, Secretary of State Steve Simon and State Auditor Julie Blaha. Then, Mike, the convention wraps up on Sunday. That final day is expected to focus on the DFL platform. That's basically the party's official positions on a wide variety of issues. So a busy weekend of celebrating down here in Rochester, Mike, and unlike last week's Republican State Convention, no endorsement contests to battle over. All right, Mark, thanks. That's NPR reporter Mark Zadeklik on the ground in Rochester for this weekend's DFL State Convention. This uh the convention isn't the only news going on this weekend. Time is running out at the state capitol to complete work of the 2022 legislative session. The legislature can't pass bills after midnight Sunday, and there's still a lot undone. Our state capitol reporters, Brian Baxt and Tim Pugmire, are on the job, and they're on the line with me now. Brian Baxt at the capitol, let me start with you. Uh, the governor and top leaders said earlier this week they had a deal to carve up what's left of the budget surplus, $4 billion in tax cuts, $4 billion in spending, $4 billion in reserve over the next few years. But they left it up to conference committees to work out the details. So have the conference committees agreed on, on any of the big issues yet? They had hoped that the those agreements would come by Wednesday. We're Friday lunchtime, and they're still not there for a lot of these. 
uh, House Speaker Melissa Hortman talked to us a little while ago, and she said that there is still time to get this all done. Uh, there's a reason that they say there's still time, because once they say there's not time, the kind of the pressure valve comes off, and it's unknown whether there'll be a special session. The governor has said he won't call one. They say that they're close on all the key things, but they just don't have anything of the big ones nailed down. Didn't Brian, the leader, say that if the conference committees couldn't agree that they would take over and start cutting deals themselves? Is that happening? It's happening to a degree. The, the, the Speaker and Senate Majority Leader Jeremy Miller have been meeting over public safety. That's one of the big sticking points. You know, the, both sides want to spend more money to, to uh, attack this crime problem, but they're going about it in different ways. And so they've been involved in that for the last day and a half. And they've also been involved on issues related to the auto parts sales tax, which some uh, Republican senators wanted to devote to transportation issues. Uh, that's That's been one of these areas of, of conflict. On the tax bill, they've generally left it to the tax chairs. They've given them some direction about what they want done there. There's $4 billion in tax cuts. There's going to be some level of income tax cut. Likely that lower tax bracket will fall a bit. There's likely to be some Social Security uh, exemption maybe an entire exemption for anyone who earns Social Security. They won't have to claim that on their taxes. And then there's likely to be some additional renter's credit uh, changes and some money there. Perhaps a dependent care credit could come into play. And then there's going to be some more money for local governments as well. On the education front, there's a billion dollars, and some of that will go probably to school districts to help with special education costs, some with literacy programs, maybe some for mental health treatment uh, programs within schools and, and making sure there's enough counselors there to deal with students who are having a problem. Tim Pugmire, let me bring you into the conversation. Uh, let's talk a little more about public safety. You've been watching some of those conference committee meetings. At least in public, they seemed a little dysfunctional, didn't they? Yeah, they sure have, Mike. Uh, uh, Darn, uh, darn near uh, argumentative. Uh, things are at a standstill. Major disagreements between the House and Senate on uh, the bill content, as well as the process uh, for trying to find that compromise. A lot of talk about, you know, what kinds of offers need to be exchanged, and that. Senate Republicans are also upset over a comment that uh, House DFL Public Safety Chair Carlos Mariani made uh, in his latest offer. He said that the House would uh, table discussion of law enforcement and community-based public safety while they work toward agreements. Uh, Republicans say, no way, that's uh, the key to their proposal. Hmm. And uh, I know a story you covered yesterday was this uh, sports betting bill. That's been an issue that's, you know, been talked about all session long. The House has passed a bill. The Senate uh, sent a bill to the floor yesterday, but they're different. Is there going to be a sports betting bill by the end of the day Sunday? Well, Speaker Hortman said today that she doesn't see a path for the bill. Uh, that version that the Senate passed uh, it, it, it is different in a significant way from the House version. Um, the Senate wants sports betting online and at Indian casinos, but also at the state's two horse racing tracks. And the House version does not include the tracks. Uh, the tribes who are on board with the House version are opposing the Senate bill. Uh, 
There's also a considerable amount of bipartisan opposition just based on the notion of expanding gambling. So uh, those issues won't be easy to resolve in the remaining time, and it does not look like it's going to happen. And what about that bill that allows uh, some of the bigger breweries in the state to sell growlers? It sounds like that one might have a little better outlook. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's part of a compromise omnibus liquor bill that uh, House and Senate negotiators announced yesterday. Uh, it adjusts the growler cap, authorizes brewers who produce up to 150,000 barrels of beer per year to sell up to 128 ounces of beer per customer per day. The current cap is 20,000 barrels. So the brewers that uh, would benefit from this are Castle Danger, Fulton, Liftbridge, Shells, Summit, and Surly. And uh, uh, as I said, that's part of a compromise uh, omnibus liquor bill that uh, could see some action pretty soon. Brian Bax, you went through that tax bill pretty quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. You said uh, maybe some renter's credit, maybe some Social Security tax relief, maybe a permanent income tax cut. I didn't hear you say a walls check, a, a rebate check to uh, to couples and individuals. Is that out? It seems to be. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Jeremy Miller said yesterday that he doesn't believe that that's in the final mix. Uh, House Speaker Melissa Hortman uh, was of the same mind today. Neither would say with certainty but that, that proposal, which would have sent $500 back for every adult uh, taxpayer in, in Minnesota, w- was kind of a heavy lift because a lot of Republicans around here saw that as allowing the governor to send out these checks right before the election. And, of course, they want to beat this governor in this, that next election. So they're, they're uh, hesitant to do it in that fashion. Speaking of the governor in the next election, Scott Jensen, the Republican-endorsed candidate, said Republicans shouldn't vote for any new spending and that the whole surplus should go back to taxpayers. Do you get the sense that any Republican legislators are listening to him? Well, there are some up here who are who are fond of uh, Senator Jensen and who helped him get the endorsement last week. They might be in line with that type of thinking. But House Republicans and, and Senate Republicans and have been working uh, toward this deal with Democrats up here in the legislature. It would be hard to see them taking this deal down or at least doing it in in open fashion where the blame could be put on them. Uh, the, the big question right now is whether they're going to get everything together in time to vote. Uh, the minority parties, they can slow things down quite a bit. But Speaker Hortman said today that she feels like she's had a pretty good working relationship with, with her counterparts this year, and they feel like they could get this done if they wanted to. There doesn't seem to be a lot of a take-it-all-down mentality up here at the Capitol. I mean, they they spent many months working through this stuff. They want something to show for it. And the current governor, the current governor Tim Walls, says that uh, he doesn't uh, want to call a special session, or he won't call one. Do you think he'll stick to that? You know, governors usually say that, and sometimes they soften on that. And, and we've seen in the past that there can be spillover special sessions, maybe allowing time to get all these bills drafted. That's the big complication right now is because they've pushed things so far along, getting the bills actually written and ready for votes is is the key pressure point here. And sometimes if they if it takes a little longer, they might just press pause and come back at some point next week. Of course, we've got Memorial Day weekend backing up against the, uh, the end of session. So lawmakers might want to be free and clear once once they're done. So 
I would imagine we'll know by the end of the weekend if there's going to be a special session and by the end of the week whether that special session has happened. Tim Pugmire, what about a public works construction bill, a bonding bill? I thought that was the whole reason for these uh, even-year sessions. We haven't heard much about it at all. And that seems to be the the Capital Investment Committees hold a heck of a lot of hearings about all these proposals. Uh, We don't actually see them all put together uh, in a bill until the end here. I mean, the very end. This is not even close to the end in terms of bonding bills. Uh, but right, the uh, the agreement uh, reached er- er- earlier in the week calls for a $1.4 billion bonding bill. So uh, it remains to be seen what will be in that. Tim, quickly, uh, what do you think the chances are they'll get this wrapped up by late Sunday night? Well, let's remind folks again, this is not a a budget year. The budget is uh, balanced for another year. And, uh, you know, there's pressure, but not as much pressure. Uh, There won't be any kind of government shutdown if they don't get things done. Uh, It's curious that this tax bill is kind of coming together ahead of the big spending bills. But Speaker Hortman said today that uh, they won't move on that tax bill until the spending bills uh, get addressed. Mm-hmm. Brian Baxter, what do you think? You think they'll get it wrapped up by midnight Sunday? I've seen lawmakers get out of tighter spots than this, so I would never uh, rule out a finish, but each passing hour makes that harder. Uh, and I can't imagine these political conventions help much in terms of getting the session done at the end. No, in fact, uh, there was some talk that the the deal itself was held up a little bit until Republicans got done with their convention because their political base is is much more leery of the Capitol and what's going on up here. And some lawmakers didn't necessarily want to get crossways with delegates. Uh, There's not many that uh, in the DFL party in the legislature who are actually going down to Rochester. So uh, and and the deal has already been mostly uh, framed out. So, okay. Those conventions are just mostly just gotten the way of the normal flow of the end of session. Well, Brian Bax, Tim Pugmire, thanks for the update. I know you'll be watching the legislature this weekend, and we'll have all the information you need on the radio and at nprnews.org. For now, that's our Friday program. Our producers this week were Jessica Bari, with help from Sam Chu and Maya Beckstrom, technical director Jess Berg. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.